As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to The Audible. I'm Stuart Mandel, joined by Bruce Feldman. Bruce, as you know, it is the greatest weekend, opening weekend in the history of college football coming up here, and we couldn't help but notice that most of the games, many of the big games, involve teams from the SEC, so we want to bring on somebody who can help us dive a little bit deeper on those SEC teams, and I think we've got that guy in Barrett Salee from Bleacher Report. Okay, but before we get to our guest, Stu, we have some huge news of a project we've been working on for really like a couple of years, technically. Uh, where are you going to be on Saturday night? So, and to be uh, fair, we did mention this on a podcast last week, but it was around the 58th minute. So we want to make sure we, we get this out here now while you're all still listening. Uh, I will be in L.A. Uh, for the first Saturday and for many Saturdays because the Audible is going to another, uh, another medium. We're, go- we're, going vi- we're going digital. We're going video. Yes, so we are going to embrace Facebook Live. We're going to do it a lot better than we did at SEC Media Days because we have a full-on producer. We're going to have a co-host join us. Kristen uh, Balboni will be our host. And so we have, we're have we excited about it. I think ultimately what we've talked about you know, offline a lot is taking some of the stuff we do on print right after the games, on usually on Sunday and Monday in our columns, and really trying to bring that perspective to the digital audience because we feel like there's a real need for it on Saturday nights. I mean, by, you know, by Saturday afternoon, late Saturday afternoon, by Saturday night, you've seen the same highlights hundreds of times, you know, but you want to, you want to discuss more about what these games mean. I know a lot of times people will kind of click on over to message boards and, and different places like that to try to discuss and, and kind of put it into context. So we're going to help you guys do that. So the way that's going to work, again, it's on Facebook Live on the CFB on Fox Facebook account, CFB on Fox. So go and like that on Facebook now so you'll be notified when we go live. We're going to go live at least twice on Saturdays in roughly, it's not an exact time, but roughly after the 3.30 Eastern games end and after the 8 p.m. Eastern games end. But we could go live if something merits it before that. We could go live then as well. Uh, we'll be in studio, uh, actually on the J- borrowing the Jay and Dan studio um, in L.A. Um, usually, Kristen and myself in person and you remotely from wherever city you're doing your sideline game from, which is Morgantown, West Virginia this week. Uh, but obviously, you'll be in L.A. a few times as well. And I'll be remote a few times as well. And so we're really looking forward to it. It'll be a chance to, like you said... You know, on TV throughout the day Saturday, you get no shortage of highlights. You get uh, many great analysts, including our own uh, Coach Wanstead, Matt Leinert, Robert Smith, uh, breaking down the X's and O's. What we want to do is spin it ahead. And so the example I always use uh, as we've pitched this over the last year is last year's Ohio State-Michigan State game, an upset that nobody saw coming that happened in the middle of the day um, by 1130 Eastern. You've seen the highlights. Now it's what does this mean for the playoff race? How does this reset the playoff race? Um, how does this affect the the legacy of that team or the Heisman race? Any number of implications, obviously. That's the 
great thing about college football is that one game can turn the entire landscape of the sport upside down. So, again, it's the Audible on Facebook Live. Uh, it'll be going out on CFB on Fox. And obviously you and I will use our Twitter feeds to, because we know not everybody's living on Facebook on Saturdays, we will use our Twitter feeds to uh, promote it and let you know uh, when we're about to go live. Sounds good. So without further ado, should we get to our guest? Let's do it. Okay, so let's get to our guest. Uh, You know, I'm excited to have our guest on because he has kind of an unconventional path into the media, which I felt like I did as well. So I always like to see guys like that. I always like to see people like that um, getting getting out into the mainstream more. So with that, from Bleacher Report uh, and deep in the heart of SEC country in Atlanta, we are pleased to be joined by Barrett Salee. Barrett, thanks for joining us on The Audible today. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. All right, so Stu, I want to get into Barrett's, uh, you know, path a little, little bit later, uh, but let's get right into it. We have week one, and uh, one of the bigger stories, and I think it's going to be this way all season, is Kirby Smart's first year, and Jacob Eason was a high-profile quarterback recruit coming in from Washington State. Barrett, what do, what do you think is realistic for Jacob Eason and and for Georgia's offense this year in year one under Kirby Smart? I mean, I think he's going to be the primary quarterback and they've been, it sounds like they've been preparing for him to be the number one guy kind of up until this week. And that's probably just because Grayson's Lambert's going to, going to try it out there and take the first snap. But, you know, I think he's going to be the primary quarterback, whether he's the starter in game one or whether he comes in 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 series two or series three. And so, you know, he's going to have some ups and downs. I, I don't necessarily think that they have the offensive line that, that a lot of others do. Um, and so he may get rattled at times. He's going to face a ton of pressure. He doesn't have weapons that I think are, are ultra trustworthy. I mean, Terry Godwin's pretty good. Uh, you know, Isaiah McKenzie's all right as a slot receiver, but you know, I, I, he's going to have some ups and downs and, and where those ups and downs come, I think really are going to determine whether Georgia is an actual, you know, East contender or not. Um, you know, it, uh, they've, uh, they've certainly got the talent to contend for that division, but I, I just, I can't imagine them being better than a nine and three type football team. And, and really being a, a contender in the East determines which nine and which three those actually are. Um, you know, but again, I think for Georgia fans and the ones that I've talked to, you know, I grew up here, I lived here my entire life. You know, it seems like the majority of the fan base, even though Mark Rick's, literally got fired for going nine and three in the regular season. You know, they're kind of content being nine and three. If it's nine and three with Jacob Eason, knowing that the 2017 could be a pretty big year. Yeah. Isn't that great? How fan expectation works. Uh, right. It wasn't good enough for one guy. I, I think even if he goes eight and four, if they are promising and Jacob Eason's promising, I mean, everybody just kind of looks at this as a, you know, as a transition to 2017 when Kirby's had a bit a more of a chance to establish himself. In terms of this North Carolina game, yeah, I don't know how to read. This is one of the more intriguing matchups because on the one hand, you would say, um, well, you know, what, look what Baylor did to in the bowl game. Just you got Nick Chubb, just line up, run it, hand it off to him and, and run it down North Carolina's throat. But like you said, I don't know that it's a given that Georgia has the offensive line to do that this year. And if they don't, can, you know, the, most likely the freshman quarterback step up and take advantage. Yeah, I mean that's the biggest that's the biggest concern. I, I, I'm I'm really I'm actually covering this game. I, I do all the games and and do do so in part to the free Chick Fil A sandwiches, of course. <laughs> um, but you know it's a, a um it's a it's kind of odd because I don't think they necessarily trust their offensive line. I don't nece- I, I know Kirby Smart doesn't trust his defensive line either. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you could be getting into a shootout if Nick Chubb and, and really to a lesser extent, Brendan Douglas and some of the other guys, you know, don't control the clock and keep North Carolina's offense on the sidelines. Cause I, I, I don't think they feel like Grayson Lambert can win a shootout and they don't really want Jacob Eason to get into a shootout in game one. So I, I, it really does fall on Nick Chubb. It does fall on, on his ability to, you know, I wouldn't say necessarily be the 30 carries a, a, a game back that he was before the injury, but he may have to code it 25 times and, and, and hope that Brendan Douglas and some of those other guys can can pick up that slack. And I, it, it's going to be fascinating because if this game gets sideways or, or the quarterback, whoever it is, makes some mistakes or there's you know a game changing fumble, you know, North Carolina can put 
you know, play point a minute football. And that's the last thing that Georgia needs at this point. You know, you guys got me excited about this game. It's been kind of over a little bit overlooked with all the other ones that people have talked about, but just the idea of the other team has a terrific running back in Elijah hood and he's going up against a largely rebuilt front seven. So that's going to be worth keeping an eye on. Let's move over to another team that has a quarterback issue. All right, Barrett, I am on the Brandon Harris bandwagon. I will mm-hmm. admit that I've been on the Brandon Harris for a while. I'm a little biased because I like Brandon as a kid. I've known him for a while, uh, but I think he's very talented. It's year three. Are, I don't know if Stu's believing yet. Uh, are you believing in him, and are you believing in LSU? Uh, I, I believe Brandon Harris is a really good quarterback in an awful spot in an awful system for himself. Um, I, I think a lot of focus is on, you know, Brandon Harris turning things around. And I don't think Brandon Harris is in a position where Brandon Harris can turn things around. I, I don't think Les Miles has changed his offensive philosophy. I don't think Les Miles ever will change his offensive philosophy. And so I don't think LSU uh, can, can really do much of anything this year. I think it's the same exact team as last year. They've got a great defense. Uh, we'll see how they transition to a 3-4. They've got a great running back, but they cannot win games, and they've proven they can't win games outside of their comfort zone. And um, that's, you know, Brandon Harris takes the brunt of the criticism for that, but it's not really his fault. That's on Les Miles. And, you know, he has not adjusted like a Nick Saban. Nick Saban won a national championship playing Clemson football because he's smart enough to go out there and hire Lane Kiffin. Uh, he won uh, an Iron Bowl in 2014 over Auburn, playing Auburn football. He's you know cranked up the tempo. He's um, understood in the West Virginia game in 2014 in the second quarter. I need to go hurry up, no huddle with Blake Sims because that's what he does well. Les Miles, like that's not even a thought process with him. So until Les proves that he can do that, I, I don't think LSU is is any different than they were last year. Whereas I think a team like Texas A&M and even a team like Auburn uh, have, has, have actually addressed their issues in the SEC West and will leapfrog LSU. I picked, I picked LSU to go 8-4 and four and 4-4 four and four in the conference. I just don't think they're much of a contender because of their head coach. Wow, Bruce, that really uh, runs, con- I guess runs contrary to both of us since I have LSU in the playoff. But I've always felt a little gun-shy about it because I am putting so much uh, faith in, in Brandon Harris and that offensive system. So if that is the case, Barrett, if you've got those other teams uh, going ahead of um, LSU, I mean, I'll start with A&M. They've obviously got a big opener against UCLA. Um, yeah, but, you know, it sounds like you feel that talent-wise, they're, first of all, in the same ballpark as LSU, um, and that you just have more faith in Trevor Knight to come in and, um, and, and lead that team than what LSU is going to try to do. Yeah, I, I do for a couple of reasons. One, um, you know, I think that from a talent standpoint, they're pretty close. And getting, you know, guys back like Atara Walaka, at linebacker, will help their run defense. I, they were really good in pass D last year, second best in the SEC. Um, obviously, you know, another year uh, with, with Mack and, and, and Miles Garrett and, and Deshaun Hall will help. Having Daylon Mack with a full year and a strength and conditioning program, I think, will help him tremendously. And then they, they, they addressed their issues. Uh, they went out and got a one of the best graduate transfer quarterbacks on the market uh, in, in Trevor Knight. Now, Trevor Knight, you know, has had his ups and downs, but, you know, he's not going to be asked to go win a ton of football games. Uh, I think with Noel Mazzoni, you know, they're going to do what Kevin Sumlin told me he wanted to do all offseason last offseason when he said he wants to run when he needs to, not just when he wants to. And it, it seemed like last year, Jake Spavital took that part of the playbook, ripped it out, set it on fire, and didn't think about it ever the entire season. And that's what Noel Mazzoni has been doing for years uh, out on the West coast, a tempo based spread power rushing attack. So um, I think they've got the guys that can do that. Keith Ford being eligible. If he can stay healthy uh, after transferred from Oklahoma is a, a pretty dangerous kid. I like James white a lot. Uh, the, the couple of the freshmen they've got coming in, I think they can trust to be change up backs out of the backfield. So I, I think they've addressed their issues um, well. And, and I think that will will lead them to uh, contention in the SEC West. Now, the one, the one thing with Texas A&M also is that if they lose the opener to UCLA and they do lose in week three to Auburn, it can go south in a hurry too. You know, I, I, that's one of the more volatile teams, uh, I think, in, in the entire country. You know, they can contend for an awful lot. They can also uh, be out of it before the leaves change color if they're not careful. Yeah, let's talk about another team that I think could go south in a hurry, and that is the Auburn Tigers. They have a big, big 
opener at home against Clemson, who was loaded on offense and got some some pieces to to put back together on defense. Do you think Gus Malzahn will be the head coach of the Auburn Tigers in 2017? Yeah, I do. Um, I had him eight and four, which I mean, if you're at eight and four, it sort of depends on how the eight look and how the four look. But I think that they, I think they'll, they'll, the thing about Auburn last year, they were in essentially every game other than the LSU game with a third string running back being the primary running back due to injury with rock Thomas and Javon Robinson, both being banged up. Peyton Barber is, was their third stringer uh, until halftime of the Louisville game and literally no threat at quarterback and with an awful defense for two months out of the season. But when Carl Lawson came back, they actually were really good defensively, 339 yards per game over the final five games of the season. And they get Carl Lawson back. They love Marlon Davidson, the true freshman kid. They have depth for days on a defensive line. And then I I think they feel very confident that Kevin Steele has simplified a defense that is very complicated under Will Muschamp and was very complicated for Will Muschamp. So under Will Muschamp. So I think defensively, they'll be significantly better. The best they've been at any point during Malzahn's tenure as a head coach or a coordinator at Auburn and offensively. Yeah, there are questions, but uh, you know, losing Javon Robinson is, 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 is not great. But the, you can criticize Gus Malzahn for a lot of different things. Development of quarterback, time management, all that is 100% valid. The one thing you can't criticize him for is developing a running game because he's done it everywhere he's gone in a variety of different ways with a variety of different players, uh, including some on the fly, like last year when, when Rock Thomas and Javon Robinson both got hurt in the first half against Louisville. So, you know, they'll be able to run the football. And I, the one thing I, I've kind of gathered from talking to the coaches there is that while, you know, Sean White's not plan A, they brought John Franklin in to be the guy. He hasn't been you know, consistent enough through the air to be the guy. At the same time, they also feel a lot more comfortable with plan B uh, in Sean White than, than they were last year and, and maybe thought they'd be at the start of fall camp in August. So I just, to me, um, that team's going to be really good defensively they're going to be really good on the ground and they'll be certainly better through the air. And, and that to me equals a couple of uh, a, a bump in, a, in, in the win total to a, to eight and four type team. I think they're going to be uh, pretty competitive in, in every game and, and, and still eight and four for them. It, it depends on how the eight look. It depends on how the four look, but most likely that keeps Gus Malzahn around. I got to tell you, after watching last chance, you, I'm not really surprised. John Franklin, the third did not end up winning the, uh, Auburn starting quarterback job, seeing as he never did beat out um, the guy who was a walk on at Mississippi, Mississippi State, State last year. Although he did have that sizzling uh, first half at the end of the uh, in, in the last game they show. I'm sorry, I'm giving all these spoilers for that documentary. Well, yeah, but that's that's a, that was a little misleading though, because I did a feature on Franklin though, and and it, the the documentary, while it was awesome and very insightful in, in junior college, it made it sound like Franklin played two games and then sat until Rhett Lashley showed up and then came in for an injured Wyatt Roberts, and no one there says that that's how that went down. Like he played every single game, he played a significant role, and the plan all along in that final game was for him to play a lot because Rhett Lashley was leaving at halftime to go to Fayetteville, Arkansas to coach, uh, in that game, uh, in late October. Uh, so that, that was a little miss, but look, I mean, it's Hollywood. They needed an antagonist and, <laughs> you know, it was made for great TV. That's for sure. That actually makes a lot more sense. Um, that actually explains why they were, well, now I'd be giving away too many plot points. So I want to <laughs> say why, Stick why, to why, our put scripts, him, why you put him back script. in the game at the end of the first half. I just watched the last part last night. That's why this is fresh in my mind it's really good i mean it, it is it's a really well done documentary and next year is going to be even better because deandre johnson's there and we all know his story um all right so i was just going to say it's it's amazing that we've been talking about the sec this long and not mentioned alabama um they play usc obviously i had a mailbag that was the lead of my mailbag on wednesday a very optimistic usc fan questioning uh the 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 national assumption that this game is going to be a blowout um I will stick to that prediction, but if this season goes, if this is the season that the Alabama run ends, which I guess would just mean losing three or four games, what will have gone wrong for Nick Saban's team? This is so not sexy, but it's the truth. It's, it's the center position. 
because not I only does, I, his, I think that's a great point. I mean, not only is Ryan Kelly gone, who was, I mean, how many centers get drafted in the first round? I mean, every, like, honestly, every time Ryan Kelly went out for the last three years, the kick six game, the uh, Ole Miss game two years ago, the Arkansas game when they won 14-13 two years ago, it's like red flags went up. But not only did they lose Ryan Kelly, everyone thought Ross Pierce Baker would be the guy moving over from guard, and then suddenly Saban throws a curveball game week and says, oh, no, it's Bozeman. So you, you, you have a new center. You have new quarterback. You have running backs who really don't have experience in pass pro going up against, well, it's a, you know unsettled front seven at USC, a really talented front seven at USC. I, I, that, to me, could spell trouble for this game and be the reason it's close. And it could be problematic for, for Alabama all season long because you know Lane is a great offensive coordinator. He gets mismatches before the line of scrimmage. He does all the things well that that offense needs. The one thing you can't do is call out protection schemes at the line of scrimmage. The center needs to do that, and he needs to be on the same page as the quarterback, and the running back needs to be on the same page too, and all three of those people are new, and that's scary. On top of that, the old line coach is new as well. That's uh, true. Coming from, come from UCF. Barrett, I want to ask you just a little bit. Um, how did you get into this? Because I know that, obviously, you, you grew up in, in Georgia, and – We've seen a lot, you know, Bleacher Report's brand has grown significantly in the last few years, especially, uh, you know, now there's a big Notre Dame project that, you know, we're all going to probably see a lot of. Mm -hmm. uh, how did you get into this, into the business and into the media? Uh, well, I majored in, in radio, TV and film in college. I, um, I worked in sports information in college. And uh, when I moved back, I worked in, in Fox in uh, regional television at Fox Sports Net South uh, doing the old. If you remember back in the early 2000s, the, the Southern Sports Reports, the Arizona Sports Reports, all the regional sports reports on Fox Sports South uh, or Fox Sports Net. I worked uh, for about three and a half years uh, doing those for the Southern Sports Report, and then they also did our Arizona shows out of our Atlanta studios, which was not good for time changes because that means getting home at 4 o'clock in the morning uh, when you did Arizona stuff. So did that um, for, for a while um, and then did some other stuff in the sports media or sports business for, for a couple of years before getting back into, uh, into radio uh, in the southeast and then uh, worked at College Football News with uh, Futech for four years before uh, getting hired at BR when, uh, when they started hiring lead writers back in 2000. 2012. Um, this is the second wave after they hired um, a, a group of five guys full time. They hired about uh, 20 more full time writers, and uh, I was one of those back in 2012. And since then, I've been doing um, you know SEC from a text perspective, national college football from a video perspective, and then when we did the uh, the BR radio deal, gosh, three years ago now uh, for SiriusXM. Uh, Sirius XM stuff for uh, for three years too. So um, yeah, it uh, you know uh, it, BR was uh, was at a, a different place when I started, and now um, the Notre Dame project, the the radio stuff, the video stuff that we've been doing for for a while now is just uh, seems to be getting bigger and bigger. The radio in particular, you know, I mean, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have Sirius XM, listen to Sirius XM. Um, I've noticed you're you're kind of all over it, and I'm curious. <laughs> You know, like we do this podcast that basically takes up two hours of our week, but, uh, you know, there's preparation as well. How do you have time for all everything you just described? Um, coffee helps. Um, luckily, uh, you know, it's it's my role from a text perspective has changed. We're not doing as much quantity stuff as we are, you know, quality, longer form, more analysis, more in-depth stuff from a text perspective. So that. Uh, has freed me up to do a little more radio, both on on BR Radio and then also on on College Sports Nation. Um, uh, so you know, it's uh, it's <laughs> it's a balancing act that uh, makes me always pay attention to what my uh, my uh, eye calendar has for me because it uh, it's it it is it is hard to uh, to balance all of it. But uh, luckily, you know, it's it's one of those things where you know I. Have, I do video at home. We've got a studio here for, for video. We have, I do radio at home, so we do radio here. I work at home unless I'm out somewhere, and typically it's, you know, I've got video responsibilities on Saturdays. So, you know, usually I, I go out to a game half the time, and usually it's Atlanta, Athens, or Auburn, which is really easy for me and no matter what. So it's, it's not as challenging as it sometimes seems. Um, you know, sometimes I just have to remember to, to eat breakfast or eat lunch or you know, go pick up my son at school and, and all that stuff. So it's it's a lot of juggling, that's for sure. When you were, uh, did you go to University of Georgia, and, uh, or were you a uh, 
Where, where did you end up at? No, I actually, I went to Auburn. My uh, my family grew up Auburn fans, but I went, I w- I've been, I honestly went to games as a fan at Auburn, Georgia, Alabama, like just random games um, uh, just growing up in high school. So I kind of had a full taste of the SEC before, uh, before you know, even really uh, deciding on where to go. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've kind of been all over the place. So, and so you, did you work in sports information at Auburn as well? Yes. So, I mean, back then, did you, did you look at the where you are now? Is this this is the dream job kind of setup? I would imagine going to be you know a kid who grew up in deep in the heart of football country as a big fan of it. And now you get to cover it. I mean, it's probably is that what you you hoped it would be when you went to college? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of wanted to do uh, just TV in college, uh, but the one thing, and this is this is back in like two thousand. I mean, this is I'm dating myself. I'm thirty six now, um, but you know, it's it you know the one thing in one class it was an electronic news media class. I forget exactly what it's called, but this is back then they called it convergence. That that you're going to have to be in in sports media. Uh, you know, you're going to have to evolve with what they called convergence back then, which is that your know, writers become video analysts on TV and radio hosts become writers and all, and all of those things are going to blend together. And that, that really has happened. And that was, that was the biggest thing that I remember thinking, okay, well, if I'm going to be a, you know, in that industry, I can't just focus on at the time, what I wanted to do was TV. Um, I need to start writing. So I started writing, um, a little bit for, you know, the, the game day program and things like that. Um, started doing some radio after that, um, got in the TV, but still kept writing a little bit on the side with some other folks to just, you know, when the, when the blog age started, you know, just on the side. So that was the one thing that I all that always stuck with me that you always have to be sort of a Jack of all trades. And, and then now at, at BR now, it sort of all just kind of fell into the, <laughs> it all sort of came together because, you know, got the the job from CFN and at BR, and instantly said you're going to do a lot of video. So there's the TV element on top of writing, and then you know a couple of years later we get to deal with SiriusXM, and here's radio. So um, that was always something that I always tried to keep in the back of my mind, prepare for, and always um, you know try to strive for. And 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 here it is. And I think everybody like you guys know this too. I mean, Bruce, you do TV, radio, and, and writing. Stuart, you do the same as well. I mean, it's you kind of have to do that these days. And and I think. That was the one lesson I remember more than anything else in college. Yeah, I mean that came to be absolutely true. In 2016, you can't not be you can't be just a writer. Very few people can get away with that at this point. But I also want to say, Bruce, you you build this at the beginning. You build it like he, we were gonna. He was gonna come out and say that he was like a Starbucks barista who randomly got <laughs> tapped to start writing about college football. It's actually you did all the things you know that that you're supposed to do. Yeah. You know, and from college on to. Uh, it wasn't. It's a everybody's path is unique, was, but I don't think it was traditional quite as newspaper route that made yeah. it different. That's true, and I think that's important for people to realize that. I was thinking about that the other day. How when I was coming out of college in '98, it was just kind of I don't know. Maybe it was a Northwestern thing. They ingrained it into you. Like there is only one way to get to the New York Times or Sports Illustrated or right. not, and that is to go out and cover sports for a small paper then work your way up to a slightly small slightly less small paper and so on and I don't think people realize that it's you know that works for some people but you know it's almost better to kind of like your job you were describing Barrett at Fox uh, local like just kind of get in as a gopher somewhere national um, and and just show them get your I just think it's more effective to and this is kind of what I did get your foot in the door and show them what you can do kind of on the side to your regular duties Rather than, you know, sending a blind resume every so often to some editor at a at a major paper or site or whatnot, and hoping they'll, you know, open the letter and then read it and then give you a call. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the the one thing is is and and you uh, people always say this in in every line of business is is dress for the job you want, not for the one you have. And I think in media, you have to always sort of dress for the job you want, not for the one you have. And I'm not talking about myself, who, for the most part, wears gym shorts and a T-shirt all day long, um, and that's on good days. Uh, you know, it's a, you know, always prepare for what you want to do and be doing what you want to do 10, 15, 20 years down the road, however you can, and there always are ways to do that. There, there, no matter what you're doing in media, there's always ways to, to prepare and do what you want to eventually do, you just have to find the right avenues to do it and be creative sometimes and how you go about it. 
I'm all mentally twisted in what in your dress dress what you want to do, and I'm thinking as soon as I thought of that, I was like, I got my guy Andy Staples in my head, and I'm like, I don't know what job that is where you wear red pants and and <laughs> so, uh, but it you know what the the cool thing about it is it it kind of affords kind of all paths in there if you work hard and you know obviously that if people who follow you on Twitter know you do. Um, by the way, Stu, I don't know if you know this about Barrett. He is probably the biggest fan of what Fox FS1 puts on our air some Saturday nights in the football season. It's like, you know, I, I will occasionally, you know, make small talk with our, our buddy Jenny Taft about it. But Barrett is like, he's the real deal. He really is into into the super, uh, super cross and motocross every single weekend on FS1. I, uh, I, well, long story short, I used to race motocross very, very amateurly. Um, for those that know the sport, uh, I was this, on the same age as Ricky Carmichael and raced a bunch of amateur races with him. And uh, with by with him, I mean I watched him dr- drive fastly away and then lap me about two laps later. Um, but I've I used to race. I raced in the Georgia Dome in 1996, an amateur day. I used I've been to every Atlanta Supercross since I was born, except for two. Um, and I watch it every single night on, on Saturday night in the off season on FS1. Like it is, and, uh, our friend Ryan McGee, who works at ESPN, uh, I still hold a grudge because out in Pasadena, when I was covering the, the, uh, Florida state Auburn national title game was the season opener in Anaheim and Ryan's flight got delayed from Bristol and he was going to meet me at the big a to, uh, to watch the season opener. And he let me down and I still, still never let him uh, hear the end of that. Two years ago, covering the. Um, Sugar Bowl, Ohio State, Alabama Sugar Bowl. Jenny mm-hmm. Jenny Taft, who's the is that is she considered a sideline reporter for motocross? Yes. Or, yeah. Okay. She was there uh, with us uh, for for the hits we were doing, and I remember at a bar asking her to explain to me exactly how it works, the circuit, all of that. Um, yes, we ha- we have a very devoted fan base for that. Of course, Jenny is being stolen away this year by college football. She will be a. Uh, <laughs> Back being a college football sideline reporter this season, starting I believe with Arizona BYU. Will she be back for for January though? Because I don't think we can survive without her getting the, getting the lowdown from from guys like Ryan Dungey and, and James Stewart. I assume so. I mean, it, okay, the good. calendar works out pretty much perfectly for that. But I should probably have asked her before we started <laughs> this out on the into the, into the mix. Breaking yeah. news! Breaking media news. Well, Barrett, we can't thank you enough for coming on and getting us. Like you said, Bruce, like once you start talking about it, you're like, wait a minute, Georgia, North Carolina, that's a really good game. But then so is Clemson, Auburn. So is um, Texas A&M, UCLA. So that's why this really is the best opening weekend in the history of the sport. It's like A&M, UCLA is fascinating too because, like, literally, you know, throw out week two because of, of Prairie View. Uh, Kevin Sumlin has literally one chance to impress the home crowd before mid-October. And by that point, it might be too late. So, like, it's it's a huge game, too. Lots and lots to like. Well, Barrett, hopefully we'll see you down the road. And, uh, again, we encourage people to uh, to follow you on Twitter as well. And um, check out your stuff on Bleach Report in all in all uh, in all mediums that you're 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 so active in that. Anytime, guys. And I promise I will eat your share of Chick-fil-A sandwiches on Saturday. For you. <laughs> yeah, please do. We will not have that opportunity. (laughs) I will. All right. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Okay, Stu. It's that time again. Let's get to the mailbag. We have, I think, an interesting one to start. It is is related to uh, our last podcast guest from a couple of days ago who kind of blindsided us with a little bit of stuff. Yeah, you think Joel um, made a little bit of news with his comments on the last podcast? Yeah, a couple of times. So let's go to at J at Colgate's question. At, J, I, at J Colgate is his At J Colgate. I'm sorry. Yes. Not reading well. Uh, while I appreciate Klatt's takedown of Tebow mania, I have an issue with him. Uh-oh. All offseason, he's been yapping about USC's D-line, even calling it a, quote, wet napkin, end quote, at one point. Is it fair of the media to be calling out USC's D line. They're young, but they're talented and played last season. On top of that, SC brought in a 25 year old grad transfer nose tackle from Utah and a junior college defensive tackle. They're also flipping a fifth year guard to the D line. That's three big mature bodies to team up with a bunch of sophomores, four and five star players. Plus Clancy Pendergrass hardly plays more than two big D 
hardly plays more than two big guys during the Pac-12 season. Thanks, fight on, and Tebow sucks. Ouch. The pile-on just continues with Tebow. Yeah. Well, I'll probably just throw that right back to you because you've been out there. uh, You've seen these guys practice. But I will say that Clay Helton has not, you know, denied the fact that defensive line is by far their biggest question mark on this team. And, you know, guys can develop over the course of the season. But as I wrote about in the mailbag, that's a, not an ideal weak link to have when you're playing Alabama the first week of the season. No, it's not. And also, you know, the new D-line coach, Kenichu Dizzy, you know, who's a former terrific player at USC, but he's, he's a young position coach. I, I did really like the hire of Clancy Pendergast bringing him back. But the reality is a lot of these guys haven't played, and they haven't played together much. And the, the guy who flipped over Khalil Rogers, if he, you know, he was – I think if they really thought he was a, a difference-maker D-line guy, he would have been over there before. But I think he was, you know, he was a serviceable interior lineman who, like he said, they needed a big body, so they moved him over there. I mean, the, the grad transfer at Utah, he did play, but I don't think he was – I don't he was not expected to start at Utah – so, you know, it's not, you know, it's not like they have Leonard Williams up there. Yeah, they have some high-profile former recruits, but that's a little different than being thrown into the middle of a game against, against, uh, against Alabama. And it did hurt. I mean, I mean, Kenny Bigelow was a five-star former recruit. It wasn't like he was playing like Leonard Williams. I mean, he's, some of these guys have not lived up to it yet or have not done it. I mean, you look at USC's roster. I mean, it's loaded with four- and five-star guys. And the majority of them haven't played that way, to be honest. Yeah, I think there's a bit of a, you know, everybody obviously looks to the new coordinator hire as a, as a salvation. But, you know, USC's defense was terrible last year. You know, specifically the, the, the Pac-12 championship game comes to mind. And so, yes, bringing in Clancy Pendergast, that will shake things up. That should change things for the better. But a defense doesn't play like that. You know, it's still about the players, and clearly they didn't have the players last year. And so, how much of an improvement can he make in one year's time? We're gonna see. I'm gonna throw you a curveball here that I did not have this email in the uh, in the included in the document I sent you, but throw it. It's a good throw one, it. and it's related to what we just talked about. Brian Smith from Rock Hill, South Carolina. Hey guys, I heard a question on your last pod about deciding who the great coordinators are. I root for Clemson, and since Dabo Swinney is more of a CEO type coach. Seems like his success is in part tied to his coordinator hires. What coaches do you think have done the best and worst with coordinator hires in recent years? My suggestions for best, Dabo Sweeney and bringing on Brent Venables and Chad Morris, and Bob Stoops for hiring Lincoln Riley. And the worst, Gus Malzahn for hiring Will Muschamp and Kevin Steele and Frank Beamer for hiring Scott Leffler. Yeah, it's funny. I, I think Scott Leffler is at BC now, and there is enthusiasm for him there. And you ask, talk to some people who have Michigan ties, and they think very highly of him. Sometimes beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Uh, the hires I've been very high on this offseason. There's really three defensive coordinator hires I loved. Two of them are UMass guys, former UMass guys. Don Brown at Michigan, Bob Shoup at Tennessee, and Dave Aranda is the other guy who came from Wisconsin to, uh, to LSU. Stu, what do you think is the worst coordinator fit you've seen in the last few years? Well, first of all, his question was like, what head coaches have made the best or worst uh, coordinator hires over the last few years? And or I thought you were going to go with that when you mentioned Don Brown. Is I got to say that Jim Harbaugh's done a great job of that. Uh, his, if you go back to his staff at Stanford, those guys are everywhere now. Uh, yeah. Now, you never know, did Harbaugh... You know, is it the Harbaugh blessing or whatever that caused them to go on that trajectory or vice versa? But, you know, I think he's done a very good job with his coordinator hires. It's interesting. Urban Meyer, it's interesting. I mean, he had no previous ties to Tom Herman when he hired him when he got to Ohio State. And, you know, I I think we can all agree that worked out tremendously. But then sometimes the hires he makes to replace them are a little, um, you know, we'll see how it works out here. But, you know bringing in Tim Beck from Nebraska, where the Nebraska fans were pretty much pretty sour on him to begin with, is a little odd. You know, in Florida, he, you know, Dan Mullen, he, he Dan Mullen was his guy, and, and Mullen coached Tebow and whatnot, and moved on to Mississippi State, and then he 
Promoted well, then he Adazio. promoted up Steve Adazio. That did, that not, did not work. go well. So that did not work. I think it just shows how hard this is. You know, he mentions Bob Stoops and, and hiring Lincoln Riley, and that was a great hire. But he had to hire him because he had just fired his Josh own Heifel. handpicked guys, Josh Heifel, who played for him. You know, before that, it's always been unclear whether the Brent Venables to Clemson was completely mutual or whatnot. But you know, he brought in his brought his brother back because the defense hadn't been performing well. So. You know, I, you, you, I, you miss. I think one of the things that we probably could throw out is, you know, Lincoln Riley to me was not a, you know, I, I don't think that's a surprise good hire. You know, some of these guys had success. The ones that I think are the ones that are the most interesting are, and I, look, I'm going to give Leach credit for this. He's not an offensive guy, but he made a really good hire last year on his defensive coordinator and Alex Strinch, who really hadn't been a defensive coordinator. And that's the part where I think, you know, you're putting your chips on the table where you've gotten a guy. I mean, you know, I would look at where you take a guy and Doug Meacham fits in this category. He was a, basically, I think, a tackles and tight ends coach at Oklahoma State. He was a former Oklahoma offensive lineman. He got to Houston. You know, Tony Levine is not still the guy there. But that hire worked out really well, and it obviously worked out exceedingly well for TCU, for Gary Patterson. When you take a guy who has not been in that role and you elevate him, I mean, it's a little bit of it's a roll of the dice, and sometimes it works. I mean, look, the same thing. Tony Levine had had uh, I think it's Eric Bush. I'm trying to remember Bush's first name. That hire and his his OC before that didn't work out. Where it was the guy was there for basically one game. He was elevated, didn't work. I mean, he had David Gibbs as a defensive coordinator. He plucked, brought him back, and that worked out really well. But I think it is a, it is that to me those are the ones that are the most interesting things when you take guys who have not been in the role and then, or you take them from, you know, lower level football and bring them up and see how it works out. So there's a few examples of that going into this season where these guys will kind of be on the, uh, you know, we'll see if, if these decisions turn out to be uh, great ones by the head coaches. The one that comes to mind immediately is that Charlie Strong is basically putting his eggs all in the basket of a guy, Sterling Gilbert, who is a young guy who is basically an Art Brile, you know, a devotee of the Art Brile's offense, but didn't really work with him at any point uh, other than, like, I think as a GA and has never called plays before. And he will be the Texas offensive coordinator this season. And Charlie, and unlike some of these where, like, DeMonte Cross gets promoted up. He was at TCU under Patterson, and he's had been an NFL coach. But DeMonte Cross is going to work for a guy in Barry Odom who he knows really well. And Barry Odom, you know, was a defensive coordinator. And what you're talking about, Charlie Strong, he's a defensive guy. Right. So it's, it's live or die with Sterling Gilbert. James Franklin is bringing in Joe Moorhead, who is the head coach at Fordham, to be the offensive coordinator. Now, that's not a case of he doesn't have the experience. You know, obviously, he's, he's been a head coach. But I would say that's pretty unconventional. And, and if it works, great. And if not, people are going to say... What was he thinking? And then here's a really under-the-radar one, but one that caught my eye in the spring. Uh, Chris Ash, you know, first-time head coach at Rutgers, comes from Urban Meyer's uh, staff most recently, Brett Bielema before that. He hired Drew Merringer as his offensive coordinator. He's 28 years old, and he was most recently the Houston wide receivers coach under Tom Herman, and that's the connection there. Yeah, Tom Herman, uh, has, Herman has told together. people about him for years, so this you know, is his chance. Yeah, he's given him the chance. Not obviously at like, not necessarily at a, at a glamour program. It's at Rutgers, but he's a Big Ten offensive coordinator at 28, um, and and not a guy that he's necessarily worked with before. Um, getting back to what you asked initially about the worst head coach, I'm, not, I'm guessing you had somebody in mind, and I'm wondering if it's this, because I gotta say it was Muschamp Charlie Weiss at Florida. Yeah, that was a really bad fit. Muschamp had a couple of bad fits there also, where. His O-line guy and his and his offensive coordinator did not get along, and that's disastrous. I mean, that ultimately might have been his undoing at UF more than anything else. Um, all right. Sorry to go on that tangent there, but I thought that was a good email. All right. my you know, Okay, so it's my turn now. Here we go. Dear, whew, somebody, uh, I'm not even going to read the name they called you on this. Let's just say it's probably a friend of Teddy Greenstein's. <laughs> Stu and Bruce, love the pod. I never miss an episode. On the most recent episode, you guys started talking about a topic I, I know quite a bit about, infectious disease. 
Washing your hands and avoiding sick people by far the most effective way to avoid disease. Second to that, keeping up to date with vaccinations and getting your seasonal flu shot will keep the most dangerous pathogens at bay. Fruit, well, fruit sure tastes good. Second, while Stu may be a West Coast superstar who can afford to keep his baby at home indefinitely, most people with jobs end up putting their kids in daycare. I mention this because I live in San Francisco and the parent shaming that goes on for people who gasp, can't afford night nurses, $100,000 a year preschool, and solar-powered strollers is intense. I love the entertaining personal anecdotes, and I still think it's hilarious that Bruce recorded an episode while hiking with his kids. But perhaps cool on the parenting advice for rich white people. I mean, ouch, right? Like, I read that and said, ouch. Um, I will take that under advisement, though I would just say that if he lives in San Francisco, he realizes that daycare is in itself very expensive. Um, There is no such thing as cheap childcare unless you have the good fortune to have a relative relative have a have your your mom the the, the grandparents uh sister-in-law whoever living right there able to do it for free i mean you send your kids to daycare and i'm assuming you're not doing it for free uh no we're not by the way it's interesting how when you when you have kids you find you bond with a lot of different people over different things Having multiples, uh, Mike Bobo and I became buddies because he they have triplets, and I remember ta- just kind of in astonishment listening to the stories of you know how you juggle that. So, I recently had a conversation with one of our colleagues about strollers. So there you go, Wanstead. Uh, yeah, Wanstead for sure. <laughs> there, we did have one more football question to get to. Bruce and Stu, I love the pod and appreciate the biweekly college football updates. As a diehard TCU fan, I'm having a hard time rec- reconciling your two viewpoints on the Frogs. Stu has them ranked higher than virtually anyone at number six, while Bruce has them finishing third in the Big 12 with a conference record of 5-4. and four. I consider myself unusually realistic when it comes to my team's expectations and believe they deserve a ranking somewhere in between. So, Stu, why are you drinking so much purple Kool-Aid? And, Bruce, have you considered that TCU hasn't lost at home since November of 2013 and that they only have three total losses in the last two years. Yeah, Bruce, what are you thinking? You know, I just think there's going to be a ton of parity in, in this in this conference. I think Oklahoma, to me, is the best team, and I think there's probably like four teams. I don't think there's a big gap between Oklahoma State and TCU. Honestly, you know, if Baylor is able to stay healthy, I know you're more down on Baylor than I am, but I think Baylor still has some a lot of speed. I mean, I think Gary Patterson's a terrific coach, but I think they're about an eight and four, nine and three team. I just, I don't know. I just not, not all on board. I mean, I, I think when you lose a great player like they had in Trevon Boykin and a great receiver and a go-to guy in Josh Doxson in a, in a conference like that. And I think the margin for error is just not that, not that significant. Whereas I look at Oklahoma and I think Baker Mayfield to me can, can solve a lot of problems. You know, I'm not sure I see that in TCU with Kenny Hill at this point. So, and, and, and as far as my perspective, yes, I realize I'm kind of out of an out on an island with TCU. I haven't seen many other people pick them to be in the playoff. But first of all, just when it comes to preseason predictions, I think it's kind of a cop out if you say my four teams are Florida State, Clemson, Alabama, and Oklahoma. Everybody says that they have their four teams. And, of course, there's no chance that the four actual playoff teams will be the top four teams in the preseason rankings. So I feel like you should go out on a limb with at least one of them. And, frankly, that's probably not even as big a limb as whoever it will turn out to be. And you're going to swing and you're going to miss like I did with Texas A&M last year. But I just think that it's worth you know, trying to identify who's going to be that playoff team that nobody saw coming. And... I also don't think it's, like he said, TCU is 23-3 and the last two years. It's not exactly an outlandish idea that they would win the Big 12 this year. Yes, Trevon Boykin and Josh Doxson, losing them is a big deal. But, you know, it's not like they're starting a a true freshman quarterback here. Kenny Hill has played at the highest level. He had an up and down, and literally up and then down season when he was the starter at A&M and eventually lost his job. I just have a lot of faith after watching what Meacham and Cumbie did with Trevon Boykin who, if you remember, was a very average quarterback who they at times moved to receiver his first two years. Uh, seeing what they did with him, I believe they'll do great things with Kenny Hill. 
And then more importantly, Gary Patterson always has a really good defense. He did not last year, in part because they were so decimated by injuries. I think they'll go back to being one, one of, if not the best defense in the conference this year. Okay. Uh, I like your Kool-Aid stew. Yes. Uh, can't wait to get to, uh, get to week one. It is almost here. We're going to check us out on Facebook Live. Uh, hopefully we won't have any technical Speak, switches. Speaking of Facebook Live, somebody asked about, since we did mention it last time, somebody who was, who was nice enough to listen to all the way to the end of the podcast asked us this. Uh, this is Aaron, whose Twitter handle is at Saunders Sports. What percent of your Facebook Live audience do you expect to be stone sober in week one? I'm setting the over-under at 12% and taking the under. Hadn't really thought about that. Midnight Eastern or 11.30 Eastern, whenever we go live, could be um, some people could have been going at it for quite a while by then. Hey, I don't care as long as you have it on. I don't care if you mute us. Just just look at the pictures. <laughs> it's uh, even drunk people are on their phones at late at night. In fact, many times they're more so on their phones. And uh, you know, this is it's just going to be an interesting experiment. This is a relatively new technology, but media companies have really embraced it. I mean, you were on a Facebook Live show the other night with uh, at Joel's show that he's going to be doing every week on Tuesdays. And we just think that, you know, you've just watched the big games. You're, you're wanting to know. You want to talk about it with your friends. You want to know what's happening. And, oh, by the way, you're, on, you're going to be on Facebook and Twitter anyway. Guess what just popped in? So uh, please. Join uh, us. Join us join. week one, especially with all the big games Saturday. There's, there's going to be so much to talk about by Saturday night. All right. Well, thanks for joining us on the Audible. Stu, do you want you to say the rest of the stuff you always say? Send your emails to theaudiblepod at gmail.com. As always, if you enjoy our podcasts, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, and please leave us a review. I happened to be reading through them the other day, and there was somebody who left one of the most recent reviews who said that they enjoy the podcast but, and that they enjoy your sense of humor, Bruce, and then said to me, don't worry about trying to be funny. Bruce has got you covered. Uh, I think that must be our buddy Rob Stone. I just can't areas. imagine anybody would listen to this podcast and say Bruce is the funny one of the two. But, you know, however you choose to enjoy it, please uh, write us a review on iTunes. It helps get the word out. We'll see you next time.